0: One of the most inefficient things you can ever do is love, right? Whether it's a puppy or a human being, loving something means entering a relationship, and that is a give and take, and it requires time and slowness, and it's not quick, it's not efficient.
1: It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered. A podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. We talk about making disciples a lot in our churches today, but what does it mean to be a disciple? I mean, what does a follower of Jesus look like in a world where the highest values are often individualism, production, and efficiency? You know, part of being a disciple of Jesus is learning how to live as a disciple in our modern world, a follower, a learner, and then providing others with a better example of what humanity should look like. But that's often not taught. We get sucked into the hamster wheel of production with churches encouraging it because it's masked as zeal and diligence. But the results speak for themselves. Pastors are quitting. People are deconstructing. Some are walking away from the faith entirely. Some have lost touch with themselves and their families in the process. To help combat this trend, we're talking with Kelly Capic about his book, You're Only Human. It's my second conversation with him. And he helps us to take a step back, look in the mirror so that we might examine ourselves to see if we are really living and displaying before the world a worthy example of humanity. And better yet a true and enticing example of what a Christ follower should look like in our world today. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen. You will be glad that you did. It was fun, it's insightful, and it's sure to help you think about what you're doing in your world and how you are displaying Christ to the people around you. And we can have conversations like this one because of listeners and supporters like you. This November and December, we are in a big push to finish the year well. We need you to do three things for us. Here they are, three S's, subscribe, share, and support. That's right, subscribe, share, and support. We need you to invest in us so that we can continue investing in you. God has built this, but he uses people to build it. And we have so many plans, so many things that God has laid on our heart that we wanna do, and we need your help to make that a reality. Because we need to raise an additional $50,000 in these two months to finish well so that we can continue watering your faith. And to those that are already supporting us, thank you. It means more than you'll ever know. But here's an incentive to those who are sitting on the fence and you're debating with yourself, gosh, should I give? Should I not? Well, if you give, $50 or more, we will enter you to receive one of 50 books we have available from authors who have been on our show. Books like Beautiful Community, which is an award winner by Erwin Entz, or Restless Devices by Felicia Wu Song, or You're Not Your Own by The Alan Noble, or The Wisdom Pyramid by Brett McCracken, and the just released Escaping Enemy Mode by Jim Wilder. It gets better. Our friends at Tyndale House Publishers have provided copies of the NLT Illustrated Study Bible, and your one-time gift of $500 or more gets you a copy. Oh, and there's one more thing. You've probably heard us talk about our missional holistic approach to faith. You're going to be hearing a lot more about that in the days, months, and, and even years to come. But if you sign on to support us monthly, you will be eligible to participate in an online study with yours truly on this God-centered study on finding God's mission for your life in our world today. Be sure to check us out also on our YouTube channel. It's growing. Subscribe there. Leave us a comment and really get your faith watered today so that you can water your world. Let's get back to our conversation with Kelly. Happy listening. It's interesting, though, with COVID, how our rhythms were disrupted. People found themselves at home. And now, though, people are still trying to grasp what their rhythm, what their rest is, and what the purpose is. That's why churches still haven't had people come back, because I think they've had a faulty theology that was disembodied, and they thought it was the lowest common denominator of Christianity, of just Jesus praying the prayer rather than understanding the saints gathered for worship and what that means. yeah. Where do you see, though, a work like yours in helping people see where they fit? I mean, like at the end of the day, what do you want to have people take away from your book?
0: Um. Well, maybe we can talk about the rhythm thing for a while first. What I yeah, want yeah, people yeah. to take away from my book, just well, I'll answer that and then we can go back to the rhythm is I want them to believe that when God said he made us as creatures and, and that was a good thing, to actually believe that. And it's not that your limits are just something you should learn that it's okay. I actually think they're good. <laughs> they're actually part of the good way God made us. And so rather than constantly apologizing and feeling guilty and shame about them, once you lean into your limits, you will actually discover the beauty of our dependence on God, dependence on others, dependence on the earth. This is all life-giving. It's a more humane existence. So yeah, my big takeaway for the book is I hope people, Christians, learn to be more comfortable being humans. And it's not that I'm trying to downplay sin or ignore sin, but you have to understand what it means to be human and not just think being a human is just really about being a sinner. And so anyways, in terms of the rhythm, yeah, I think that there's a huge, I, you know, as I talk about that in the book and even rest this idea, there's a section you may remember on a theology of sleep, which is super yes. fun to kind of think yes, about, yes, yes. but, but rhythm is important because, okay. So we've got this rhetoric in our, in our churches and some, some of it, no one meant bad by this and some of it's good, but anyways, I'm going to stop qualifying and just get myself in trouble. So it's like, don't waste your life. Oh, yeah. you redeem every moment, every moment. Every right, moment right. Right. And, and that's, so that's a great example of a text that we've taken and read in a purely modernist Western individualist kind of way. So the idea of redeeming every moment means we think that means you must be producing things every moment. Otherwise it's wasted. And I, I think that is actually dangerous. Because it fosters an inhumanity. in fact, again, I, I, a different pastor from the Midwest, we were recently talking, and he told me, he said, Listen, I was I was energized by this this stuff in my twenties. And me and a group of guys got together and we said, This is how we can only sleep, we can do this. We can do four hours of sleep a night. So we'll have more hours every day to honor Christ and you know push back against the devil and all that kind of stuff. And he, he laughed and said, you know, it was crazy, but but the truth is that. So even though he didn't actually just sleep four hours, that mentality and those expectations that he and others were receiving and fostering, again, he told me, and in in as I don't know what it is, he's in his late a, a late 40s, different guy, different context, different denomination, etc. And he said, I literally, I had been in ministry for 20 years and I was about to be checked into a mental institution. And he said, appropriately so. I was about to lose my marriage. I was losing my job. Yeah. And he just went through that. So all of this really matters. So you have those things now to get to the rhythm when you're told, don't waste your life. And then you have a newborn in your house, right? <laughs> and you're, and my wife's so great Tabitha. people when our first child was born, you know, they are like, how are things going? How's Jonathan? And she would like, he's like three months old. And she's like, you know, It's good, but he's pretty needy. (laughs) And you didn't wait for the horrified look in the other person's eyes, like, wait, wait. I mean, it's a baby, right? And as hilarious as that is, she's being funny to help people go like, yeah, my whole life is now dominated by this needy creature. And yet, if you don't understand, this is now a season for this. And that, as a family, we need to adjust expectations and live accordingly. Then you're not only going to feel exhausted and worn out. You're going to feel guilty all the time, right? I just, I, there was just a young couple and they had their firstborn coming. And before the firstborn was born, they, they told a group of us, they said, you know, Hey, this is really exciting. The baby comes. And then three weeks later, we moved to Europe because we're doing this mission trip and we're doing, and we're just like, you know they didn't know better. They never had a baby before. <laughs> they just kind of think, yeah, you just live your life and you just throw a baby and there's no more needs, right? There's, nothing's going to slow down. And, you know, and it's funny once you've lived it, but it's painful, right? But just the different seasons of life and recognizing and honoring that, or even just to be personal. One of the things that I'm just terrible at is on Monday, I'll get into the office and I will do my to-do list, but I just set myself up because my Monday to-do list is so long that I guarantee by the end of my Monday, I'm going to feel terrible because I didn't write a Monday to-do list. I wrote a to-do list for my whole week, but I just put it all on Monday so that that way I'm guaranteed. To just feel like a failure at the end of the day. Well, that's stupid, right? That's not honoring. (laughs) That's not honoring the rhythms of a day, a week, a month, a year. There are things that just take years, and if you expect to get them done quicker, it's it's a problem.
1: Well, but even in mentioning that, you. When you start doing that and I have to get this done and get this done, then you have people come in and you're like, you see them as an interruption. Exactly. Rather than for, for people. And it's about relationships. And I I had recently interviewed Jay Moon and Bud Simon, who had written a book They're at Asbury wrote a book called intercultural evangelism. And they talk about being in, I think, I can't remember if it was Brazil or where, where it was, but they said, we went to this group went to go build houses. And one of the guys got off the roof and he started engaging with conversations with the neighbors. Now the other guys are looking around and saying, basically, he's lazy. And he said, but if that's your criteria, that's your build houses, then he's right. But if it's to build relationships and show them who Christ is, then he's the guy that's in the right. And you guys are the one that's in the wrong. And I think this is where our modern understanding of production, of producing, and not to say that we don't produce, we are creatures. Creatures but it's that spectrum and i think that's what you're trying to say even when we're talking about don't waste your life he's responding to those who have just pursued all kinds of i mean frivolities if you if you will you know the banalities of life without any idea of higher meaning but people took that too far and then they 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 took it to the nth degree where there is no idea of any type of leisure whatsoever and and we're not made for that just like you you mentioned in the book beauty something that i think gets underlooked because some Christians say, what do we need to do with beauty? Why does that even matter? Because our souls are made for that. You mentioned that in the book.
0: Well, the, part of the reason I think we have trouble with it is because beauty is often inefficient, right? Yeah. So when you ask, what do I want people to take away from the book? Another one of the main ideas I want people to take away is, is the problem that we have made efficiency and productivity our highest values. Oh yes, we have. and And, I do think efficiency and productivity matter. They've mattered a lot in my life. There, but the problem is when you take good things and make them the most important thing, God things, and they it, become terrible things. thing, right? Okay. And so, for God, there's a there's a whole chapter which I really loved working through and writing, but because um, it mattered for my own life. But the whole book is ranged around these various questions, and one of the questions is why doesn't God just instantly change me, right? And, and chapter eight, yeah. So the 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 big aha is because efficiency and productivity aren't God's highest values, love is, right? And so God is very comfortable with process. He's comfortable with taking us through. And until you actually buy that, then the fact is, as long as you and I are sinners, every day our only option is to feel terrible. But if you actually reframe it and go, no, the God who is the creator and takes his time in creation, and the God who is the God of sanctification, He's always been comfortable with process. Process he actually likes. And so if he's not panicking, I shouldn't panic. It's not that I should be not take sin seriously, but if you if you take it in a way that doesn't honor process, then you will only feel guilt and shame and never joy and delight. Or another way is you will never value beauty because viewed beauty is slow, it's inefficient, you know, or often it is. So I mean, one of the most inefficient things you can do, and this was kind of the story you just told, one of the most inefficient things you can ever do is love, right? Whether it's a puppy or a human being, loving something means entering a relationship and that is a give and take and it requires time and slowness and it's not quick, not efficient. We're gonna take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back.
1: The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today. Because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. You mentioned this in the book. Is God efficient? I'm on page 148. I, I wanted to highlight this because I wrote at the top beauty and efficiency. You know, I I I just love this part of it because I do think that we are made to identify beauty. I had Jeremy Treat on, and he mentioned he mentioned the story of uh, a a couple who had no money. Uh, they were really low on their budget, and he the husband came home and in the, the, the vase at the dinner table was, was flowers were flowers. And he was frustrated. And she says, you know, our souls are like, we, we don't have a lot of money. Um, cause he's thinking food, shelter. And, and she's like, but our, our souls are starving for beauty too.
0: Yeah. And I I think there's that that aspect. Makako Fujimori. He talks about that. Yeah. That was his wife. It was like, they were starving artist and Oh, is like, it him that did yeah, it? Who okay. Actually, okay. I mean Jeremy's probably drawing on that, but the, it is a beautiful example of like these flowers feel so wasteful but our souls need them. Right? There is something about anyways, yeah, it's like is walking in the woods ever when things are stressful. That's an inefficient thing or painting or reading or sleeping or daydreaming can any of these, but actually our souls need them. This is part of how God made us.
1: That's why I told my wife, that's why God made you. Cause I need to see it. <laughs> yeah, beauty. That's... And She's like, but, but why did he make you? Cause you're not beautiful. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but you write this, you say historians of architecture and social critics have long observed that taking efficiency to be the only criterion in the construction of buildings, especially housing, often has significant unintended consequences. Community housing with no positive aesthetic can actually suck the life out of those who inhabit that space. Beige wall after beige wall, prickly indoor-outdoor carpeting, narrow hallways, low ceilings, few windows, and cold concrete-covered outsides act like a lead blanket laid over the spirits of the inhabitants, just as beauty feeds the souls of people who see it. The lack of beauty starves us of something that we have difficulty describing, but keenly feel. Where is the life, the beauty, the loving process? That that you didn't write that. Your wife did, right? Mm-hmm.
0: No, I did write that.
1: <laughs> but, but fair enough.
0: Fair enough. But, you know what's funny is you're reading. I've just struck because I had a particular building that that we would walk by all the time when we lived in London. And that's just how it felt, you know, and knowing people who live there. Yeah. It well, wasn't well, just hypothetical.
1: When I was in Chicago, we had Cabrini yeah. green.
0: Yeah. I and, was just going to say Cabrini green. is yeah, also yeah.
1: It, it, it yeah. was like that. And, but people think, Oh, again, food, shelter, housing, what's the yeah, problem?
0: What's the problem? Yeah. If what's it's all concrete and it, and it looks ugly and terrible and yeah, it's fascinating. You've probably seen some of these studies where, and yet, they've taken some areas with high crime and planted trees and cleaned up some things and crime goes down and you're like, what it's trees and painted walls. Well, actually it, it's there. It, these things affect us. Yeah. It's beauty. And it's, it's reconnecting us with our humanity. That's the thing. Cause we're not robots. And to be a human is to be creature, which actually then means to be in relationship with the rest of creation.
1: You know, you know it's interesting, and I've referenced this story before on the show, but I, I remember being in a meeting with these other pastor elders of a church. And and uh, someone suggested the, the facility was looking pretty poor, and it had the beige walls everywhere. And someone said, well, let's paint it. You know, let's let's paint. Let's do some bright colors. And, and one of the pastors stops and goes, we'll never paint the church. And he's, everybody kind of looked at him and he said, we're going to give that money to missions and everybody put their head down and they're like, oh, this guy is so holy and we're so fleshly. And one of the other pastors looks up and he goes, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Exactly, (laughs) He said, he's like, what do you mean? And he said, do you paint your house? And the guy's like, yeah, he goes, then just paint the church. We're not trying to build the Sistine Chapel here. Make it look nice in this idea of beauty. Now the neither one of these guys were people that I would say were fashion icons or into architectural interior design, but I'd still think there was a principle that was being articulated without being explicitly said that, that we have this desire. And, and it's, it's, again, part of our createdness to, to want that beauty. Now, you mentioned, though, something else. You said, love, beauty, wonder, and worship are God's main goals. Sometimes he is astonishingly efficient in his work, He can quickly turn water into wine. He can make a dead person rise, but often because he is compelled by love rather than mere production, he takes slower routes. Exodus normally takes time calling for faith and growth process has always been his normal pattern rather than snapping his fingers. The father through his word sends the spirit of the darkness hovering above turbulent waters while beginning to order out of the emptiness and void. On one level, I am so grateful that God takes his time. On another mm. level, I'm like, I hate process. Yeah,
0: yeah. Sure. yeah. <laughs> Personally. Yeah. Personally. Can I can I just say something on that? It's interesting. So, I, you know, I find, because I've been reflecting on this as a father, we were married nine years before we had kids, and now we have one in college, and one just today literally was the start of her senior year in high school. And they're amazing kids. But one of the things I I... I have learned about myself that I've had to notice is, and I have very good relationships with my kids. They're amazing. But I realize sometimes as I'm processing things inside, I have to go, wait a minute. You're you're expecting a finished product. This is a child who's 13. They're not 24. They're not 44 and they're not 64. And so it's kind of, blends the rhythm and all that, but even as parents, we need to recognize it's appropriate to expect certain things at certain stages in life, but it's inappropriate to expect a 13-year-old to be as mature as a 30-year-old. That actually becomes cruel, right? And, and so anyway, I just kind of thinking about that. Now, if I can understand that um, as a parent, God gets that by all means. Right. He knows exactly where we're at. He's very, he, he is a tender, abounding in compassion towards us and gets our situation.
1: Well, you, you undoubtedly have heard when Tim Keller described, he said, you know, he said 30 years ago, or he said 20 years ago, I looked back on my life 10 years before and I went, man, I was a fool. 10 years after that, I looked at myself 10 years before and I went, man, I was a fool and he goes so right now i look back 10 years ago and i go man i was so foolish he goes you know what that means <laughs> yeah. and
0: i'm a fool now <laughs> yeah that's right that's right i hadn't heard that but i yeah i, I buy that right well yeah that's good that idea of
1: process i think is something that we have really lost sight on and that's part of the the bounded set versus centered set idea that a uh, uh, Mark Baker had written his book on, on bounded sets and centered sets. And we've talked about that in here where, you know, you have the line, uh, the Rubicon that you cross and you're this Christian and everybody thinks you're now a finished product and rather than, and and then you see these people that, you know, either they, they got baptized, they joined the church and went through confirmation or whatever it was. And then they suddenly stop coming to church because they think they've arrived rather than the person who is the God have mercy on me, a center who's there every week and yet continues to, grow in their understanding even though they haven't quote quote, unquote arrived and and but they're the one that's really closer to christ in the long run because they're in process and i I think as a church as churches we've too often looked at the product rather than the process
0: and even the person the first person you mentioned who ended up not coming back to the church at some point for it i think another reason you and i've both seen this in our kind of pastoral ministries of various kinds they stop, sometimes they stop coming because they actually had often subconsciously been taught, they are supposed to be finished products and they actually know they're not. And so they start looking around and going, well, maybe I'm not a Christian or maybe I, cause I have so many deep issues. I'm still struggling with these addictions. I still have these, I still get angry. I still want to, you know, name the thing. And so like, I can't be at church cause I'm may, maybe I'm not cause I'm. I'm actually still all of these other things. And that is a problem as the church because it does. It, the beauty of the church is we say we are saints. Yeah. We are, it's not that one day we'll be saints. It's not that just a few of the special people are saints. It is to, we are the saints. But that is not yet fully realized. And so we are saints who are in the process of becoming saints. It's both true. And it will be true. And somehow we need to communicate both that confidence, but also the process.
1: It's that difference between, I mean, positional sanctification and progressive sanctification, right? We are positionally holy, but yet we're to be holy as he is holy. So, but those are going to have the ebbs and flows. We're going to have failures. We're going to have falls. But I, I think you're right. I think that the church is has looked at people as I get saved and I'm 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 healed. Everything's great. I'm delivered. I don't have these struggles anymore. I I knew of a man who was going through his wife had caught him with with some kind of pornography. Mm. And so he's like, Well, he went to his pastor and he comes home and he goes, Honey, I'm delivered. As if I got this now, get out of jail free card. And I don't have to worry, you don't have to worry about this anymore. And it's like, well, no, God does deliver. I'm not going to deny that. But yet we're also called to die daily and face the consequences of our actions and the mortification of sin, as your friend John Owen would 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 clearly would clearly state it. Continuing on though with the book, you mentioned one thing that I wanted to really draw out. I want to talk about anxiety, but before we get to Mm -hmm. that, I want to talk about a quote that you said. You said secularism is the negation of worship. Mm. What do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, and there I'm actually drawing on an Eastern Orthodox theologian, but I I really loved it because there's lots of definitions of of secularism, but what he was trying to get at there, and what I'm trying to get at there, is a sense of the secular in which, in this sense, it is living in the absence of transcendence. It is, what I mean by that, and, and the point is that in this way, Christians can be secular in the sense of, you could be in the pew singing songs, but is it actual worship, right? And, and it is a secular in this sense is the loss of a recognition of God's presence, power, commitment, promises, those kind of things. And so part of, part of what I'm getting at there is trying to, trying to help us recognize it's, it's related to a discussion I have about the fear of the Lord and that Fundamentally, the fear of the Lord is not learning to be scared about of God. It's learning to live in light of His presence, uh, to recognize Him, and, and those kind of things. And so, the secular is this absence of worship in our lives—not just when we're in the pew, but when we're walking around, right? But, but when our lives are not secular, what that means is we are quick throughout our day to praise God in gratitude for gifts given, to lament when we see injustices and wrongs. All of these things are a way of worship and relating to God, not just an hour a day. And even we've actually reduced worship in our day to just the singing time of, of church, right? But, but this idea of no, 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 we live, breathe and have our being in Him. And so all life is lived before Him in prayer It is meant to be an act of worship. There is something special about corporate worship and that's a longer conversation, but nevertheless, there is a sense in which our lives are meant to be lived in the fear of the Lord, which is in this posture of worship.
1: One of the things that we tried to do is engage the five senses like they did in the temple. You know, smell, taste, touch, m- movement, embodiment, rather than just the singing aspect. Although singing is important, um, it's extremely important. How do we go about that embodiment in bringing out that within the corporate worship?
0: I love that question. I don't think I have the best answers, but I love the question and think that's in some ways, I, that's what I'm trying to do is bring the questions and let those more qualified than me get to them. But I I you know I think of, and I talked about this in the book, I had a friend who grew up in the church, very well educated, she related to people in ministry. She really understood the whole thing. But she just was finding church very difficult. And for her, the thing that really struck me, we're watching this little you know, kids play soccer, and she just finally she just admitted, she said, you know? In some ways, I feel more connected to God when I'm doing yoga than when I'm at church. And so, I, you know, rather than immediately going, Oh, this is bad, you know, I just asked, Tell me more about that. What's that? And she just realized church had been reduced to a lecture hall for her. And it was pr- pretty efficient. But when she was doing yoga in this space, there was this sense of connection with her body, there was this slowness. There was an encouragement for silence and listening, and as a Christian, she could be praying. And so I do think those of us who are involved in church leadership and thinking through corporate worship, we need to think through that. How do we not fall guilty of this whole brains on stick thing, Mm -hmm. right? And that, no, corporate worship isn't a gymnasium. It's not about just running around but at the same time, we need to live in light of our bodies. I, one of the things I didn't plan on researching and writing about in the book, but I did, and it was a delight was this whole idea of greet one another with a holy kiss. Mm -hmm. And you know, my whole life and in churches, we, we mentioned that, but it's always kind of a joke. Like, "Ah, yeah, shake each other. But I, and I, I don't really like greeting time in church, right? It feels like, come on, this is awkward and uncomfortable. And but I, as I've gone through it, I like, no, this is actually really important. And it is a physical manifestation when you give one another the peace of Christ, depending on your tradition, shake mm-hmm. hands, hug, you know, kind of recognize the babies among us. You, there's something about that. And then again, I start reading in the ancient church and start reading. And some of them would say, if after our corporate prayer, you don't have the sealing of it in the holy kiss, we're not sure those prayers were heard. And that really struck me. And it was because love of God and love of neighbor are always meant to be connected. Mm. And and so, and it, I think it is, that there's an earthiness to it. Now, they ended up wrestling with at some point, or like, well, maybe men should kiss women. And, and then they divided among the sexes. And then eventually, you know, a millennia later, basically in much of the world gets lost. And I think that is a loss to us because in the ancient church, part of what was so radical is men and women who weren't married, would greet one another with a holy kiss. And in this, we think, oh, our age is so sexualized. It's totally sexualized in the first century. Mm -hmm. And the radical nature of the Christian motto was, we're the body of Christ, but we're also a family. So we learn to treat each other as brothers and sisters. And you do treat one another and acknowledge each other's bodies differently when you're in a family than when you're not. And so I actually think losing all of that contributes to our objectification of people, our discomfort and keeping people at a distance. So that's a longer answer, but all that to say, people more able than me need to help us think through how in our day, in our cultures, we can, in our corporate worship services, affirm our bodies rather than deny them.
1: When I started thinking about that, you gave that example about the woman doing yoga. I'm just I hear like hot worship because you have hot yoga or goat yoga. <laughs> and I'm like, go, okay, wait, no, goat worship. No, goat worship. No, that's not wrong. That's, that's heresy. No, no, no. Yeah. But I'm trying to figure out how do you get, because we've had, I know in the, in the, I come from a Baptistic tradition, which is not known for like a higher liturgy. But we would, we would bow, we would lament, we would, um, in a Baptist
0: setting. That's great. Yeah.
1: Yeah, That's we. Crazy. I mean, this is what I would have our our people do because I looked at it more of a biblical setting,
0: right? I would yeah, say it's
1: totally I'd say, biblical. I'd say biblical. Like we had a we had a man who took his own life. He had been on staff, and and it was his. Uh, he he had a lot of illnesses and a lot of issues, and the day after he had taken his life, there were some women at the church. I saw the next morning, and this woman was crying, and she said, "This isn't tears. These aren't tears of sadness. This is tear of anger." Yeah. And and I thought, well, we need to like I called one of the other pastors on staff and and he was at a different campus. I said, "What are you going to say?" And he said, "It doesn't matter what I say. He goes, "You're the one that's facing the actual family, his widow and his children." And so I said what we're going to do is lament. And so we did this worship service and I I said, "We're going to just we're going to yell, you're going to shout if you're angry, be angry, if you're going to cry, be cry." And of course, it was very foreign to many of them because it's not in their tradition, and so people were quiet for the first service. Second service we had a lot of Africans. So they have no problem, none whatsoever. And they taught us something there on lament, but there's other times I'm like, we're going to bow. We're going to greet one another. We're going to hold hands across the aisles, trying to help people engage in that embodiment level. But I I think you're right. And I mentioned your quote, uh, that story to my wife. And she said, yeah, definitely. There's this idea we get done and we just, we head right for the door. And and it's harder in larger churches. It's much more difficult to do that in a smaller fellowship. I think it's a little bit better, but I do think that need of embodiment is is become something that's even more pressing today. I, I was speaking at a camp and this is directly right after COVID, or actually right near the end of it when the like the state wasn't locked down. And the state though, the next door was, and one man came in and he said, I'm so desperate just to be with God's people to, and I'll pay $200 every week if I can just be with God's people. Wow. Yeah. And I thought, I thought, how true is that? Which is again, the idea of embodiment, but yet embodiment, like we've talked about today, there's the spectrum, there's the embodiment where everything is but embodied to the point where it can become an idol in itself. And then the other way where it's disembodied and you're calling for us to, to re-see something that has been basically seen by Christians throughout all of time. Yeah, that's right. And they, they understood the rhythms and limits and Sabbath, but it's only in the modern era with modernity and secularization that, that that's going on, which has produced unbelievable anxiety. And I want to talk about that because you write about this anxiety in your book, why do we need to discuss, and this maybe even goes without saying, but of course I'm going to say it, to discuss these crippling effects of anxiety that seem to be plaguing us and springing up all over the place, even among Christians within the church today?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And as you know, I mean, that's, it's a super hard question. I'm a college professor, been teaching at the same college for 21 years. And where I teach is a fantastic college called Covenant College on and but it's Lookout Mountain in Georgia. That's right. You it. You got in it. Georgia, darn it. <laughs> but um, but what we're seeing in every other institution, both Christian and non-Christian that I know of, and I spend a lot of time engaged in these kind of conversations, people just cannot keep up with the mental health issues of of students, and that was before COVID, and now COVID uh, COVID has just made it all the all the worse, and so. There's all kinds of challenging questions to ask. How, why is that the case? What's happening here? And I've read a fair amount. I have opinions, but actually there's more qualified people than me to try and figure that out. Um, I, I, you know, I think there are cultural. I think there are historical. I think there are environmental, biological, all, all these things. And I think simple answers are probably a problem. And I will say, as someone who works with college students, I've now grown defensive of them because it's too easy. When people say they're snowflakes, they're this and that. I'm like, let me tell you about what they've gone through. Let me tell you about some of the amazing things I've seen in them. So I do think those narratives of they're just soft is unkind and unfair. There's always some truth in stereotypes, but, but I think those are problems. But having said that, I, I also deal with people in their 30s and in their 40s and their 50s and 60s and beyond where anxiety is a very deep issue. And it can be in my life. But part of what I became interested in is, is trying to navigate the difference between stress and anxiety, because we constantly talk about how stressed we are. And, and so, although I'm not, I work with psychologists, but I am not the most qualified to talk about a diagnosis of, uh, of anxiety. So I'm going to talk about it in a more common language idea of, of anxiety. And so let me explain what I'm trying to get at. We talk about how stressed we are and how busy we are. And part of what I try and explore in the book is I actually don't think I came to believe researching and thinking through this. I, I don't think that stress is itself a bad thing. I think it's actually part of how God made us so that when we hear a bear roar, <laughs> we can, we can move a little faster, right? When there's just things about us. Our adrenaline will run. Uh, there will th- things that happen under stressful situations that can be chemical responses and other things. You work harder. You, you know, deadlines. I hate deadlines, but the truth is, deadlines really help me. Otherwise, my books would never get finished, right? There, there is, so that can be stressful. But stress can be a good thing. Stress is how certain bridges stay you have to have a certain amount of stress so i don't think i think we've confused stress is not a is not a bad but the problem is a good gift becomes a terrible master and so we, we stress i think was made for us to be able to handle in episodic kind of ways it, it would come and it would go adrenaline rush and then you get done, you know, that kind of thing our problem is we've taken what's episodic And a good thing in small doses given particular situations, and we've made it a lifestyle. And when it becomes moves from episodic to lifestyle, now it's deadly because you're not made to live with adrenaline rushes, you're not made to live with these chemists, you're these chemicals in your body constantly. All that, and we, you know, even just simple examples of in war, of you know. We would send someone out and it used to be, you could only do a tour of duty once or twice because you just can't take it. Right. But now we leave people out there longer and longer. And what we're finding is the consequences of that. Their bodies literally break. And so we, we, but we are doing that culturally, socially to people with endless expectations. I'll give you one more story and then we can decide where to go from there. But so since I've been talking about the, this idea of finitude for a long time and thinking, I, and I asked people for insights. And so one time I had a lunch with a student and she and she wanted to talk about these things. And she came to the lunchroom and we sat down to have lunch and she pulls out this piece of paper and it was a, a chart. It, it was a and one page showed her a week, you know, the 24 hours of a day and she had color coded it. And every hour was a different, you know, different colors represented different things. And she said, on this chart, I tried to map out what my week is like. And in it, I tried to take into account everything that people I trust, my pastor, professors like you, people who I trust say, these are things you should do in your day. And so she just shows me this chart. Well, we say, well, listen, right. We all say these kinds of things, like, well, you should. You should, your body needs like eight hours of sleep. So you should make sure you sleep eight hours. All right, mark off eight hours. We say, well, you're a Christian. You should spend some time in the word every day and some prayer. So she marks out a little time. And then we say, you know, you need three meals a day and don't just shove McDonald's in your mouth. Actually have a conversation with someone, be more humane. So she creates some space for mealtimes. And we're like, and I'm in a college. So you have 16 hours of classes. She puts those in you're like, well, it actually takes 10 minutes, 15 minutes to get to each class. And then afterwards, and then you, got, and then we say, well, in, in a workplace, it'd be different, but in a classroom, if you have this much, if you're an hour in class, you should study this much out. You see where this is going. It was literally, and I don't use the word literally like a lot of people. I mean, literally (laughs) impossible for her to do everything that she was told she should do. She could not study as much as we said she could, she should. She could not do all these things. Well, that's actually hilarious when you think about it, because we're telling her to feel guilty for not getting everything done that's literally impossible to get done. But that is just what's happening. So we are telling people constantly you need to live at a high level of stress, even though often you're a new parent. You're in your job, whatever it is. It's often impossible to do everything you think you should do, so you're feeling guilty even when it's not possible. So we can't break this. So it is not an episodic moments of stress. It is a life of stress, and and you will not make that. There will be destruction at the end of that.
1: That is exactly the problem that I see with a lot of places. It's not just unique to the college students, but that's just one.
0: That's just prob- life. Yeah. It's
1: just life for all of us. It's like, again, you don't have the rhythms. Like I I knew of a woman, she was a young mother and she goes, I'm sorry, I can't play on the worship team right now. And she felt really guilty. I'm like, why do you feel guilty? Don't feel guilty. I was like, you're at a place in your life where your family has taken priority. It's okay it is okay. Again, this rhythm, this rhythm is going to be for a time. And as you get older, your body slows down and you can't do everything. It's not about production. But I remember I had a pastor friend tell me, we were getting into this discussion on time. And he knew, he's like, there's 168 hours in a week. And he goes, you need, we have our 40 hour work week. This is normal, but normal people have 40 hours. And matter of fact, they have more than that. And then he said, and we expect them to volunteer at church 20 hours a week or be at church 20 hours a week. Therefore, you're going to, because we can't ask something of our people that they themselves can't, won't do. I mean, they can't do. So, now you have to do those extra 20 hours a week. And I was like, this is nuts. This is crazy to qualify it this way. And part of that's just him. He wasn't trying to be a jerk. And, and he loves the Lord deeply, deeply, deeply. But I, I'm like, but that's not how, biblically, that's not how they thought about time. No, number one, number one. And, but it's this use every square moment for the glory of God. Don't waste your life. And I'm like, but you're going to kill people. This is not the abundant
0: life that Jesus was talking about. So I, yeah, part of, part of the challenge is we've lost sight of what does it mean to be human and what is it, what does life mean? And so life is being at things, doing things, but the idea of sitting, the idea of slow meals, all of that gets lost because it's all and so we like to, oh, those Instagram people, but all of us in a sense, I don't even have Instagram, but the, I, there is a sense of which we're all trying to accumulate experiences and, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of, it's fascinating. There, there's was a recent book and this guy, I, th- I think his first couple of books, the New York times bestseller writing on time management. He's not a person of faith from what I can tell, but he has actually engaged some, some Christian literature but his most recent book given my my work once it came out it came to my attention i wasn't going to read it because of the title the title is called 10,000 weeks you may have seen this it was, was it 10,000? was it are you talking about malcolm gladwell no 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 it's not Mal- although i can imagine malcolm gladwell will pick up on this if he hasn't yet so I, and this book has done exceptionally well but so here's this person not writing and 10,000 weeks so i read it and i thought oh this is this is really interesting 10,000 weeks is the average lifespan of a Western person today, right? And, and it's funny because the author didn't create these, but now you can buy on Amazon. You can buy like a wall chart and it's got 10,000 weeks that you put up there and mark them off. And you think, how depressing is that? Right? <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you got some years behind you, right? It's just getting smaller and smaller. Uh, but, but I thought, I'm not going to read that. That's just depressing. And it's just going to be about, look, you need to really suck it up and get more done. What was fascinating, that's not what happens in the book. What the author realized in his preparation for it, and because of things that happened in his life is, oh my gosh, those of us in the time management industry, we are, the unspoken thing we don't even realize we're doing is we are all living in denial of our mortality Mm. and our death. And in his own way, it was his way of realizing we all have such unrealistic goals. So we feel guilty for not doing what we cannot do. And so coming to terms, here's this non-Christian telling people you need to come to terms with your mortality, right? So that you can live in the present. And, and that's like, the reason I brought all that up is like when you're saying, yeah, what does it mean does, to be a faithful Christian? Does that mean you need to add? to your 45-hour work week, 50-hour work week, another 20 hours at church to be a good Christian? No, part of it's to be humane, right? To learn what do we, what does it mean to laugh with children? What does it mean to be present? What does it mean to barbecue with a neighbor because you're available? What does it mean to go for walks and not feel guilty? I think the church, I, I, I'm, I'm planning to write, I, I'm giving, you said you're a graduate of, of Trinity and I'm going to be there in the spring and they're doing a series on discipleship and and they asked me for the title of my lecture because I'm coming in for that. And I think I'm going to write, go out and, and make humans, right? Changing the <laughs> word discipleship <laughs> to humans because I think part of what we need to understand with discipleship is in an inhumane world, we need to pe- learn, help people learn to be human. And that's very Christian.
1: You know it's interesting I, I I remember reading Oswald Chambers My Utmost for His Highest and he talks about common sense and how bad common sense is and I think he's writing at that time because people were denying a lot of the aspects of the spirit so he's basically saying that common sense doesn't Really puts you in touch with the spirit of God. And again, the spectrum, right? It goes from one, the pendulum goes from one to the other. And now I feel like we've gone the other way, where now it's like there's no common sense any longer. We just can't see the common sense and how it works within our lives that we are human and that these limitations are good. But we do believe we can seize the day, we can be whatever we want to be, which is this horrific, horrific burden that we're not meant really to bear. And so Recovering our humanity, I, I like that. You know, go and make humans. It sounds, on one level, you're like, okay, what sci- sci-fi book are you trying to create here, movie? But this idea of our own limitations, and that's okay,
0: and that's yeah, it's okay. Fac- I, it's fascinating the way you mentioned that because I was just on this long flight, and it was an internet. I was it was to Australia, and that matters just because it was 28 hours door to door, right? So you're on an airplane, countless hours, right? And anyways, on the way over, I noticed, you know, that everyone's watching movies. And I noticed this one that looked just really weird. And I think the movie's called, it's brand new. It's called Everywhere Always or something like that. Okay. Was, oh, man, it's too bad. I can't remember what it was called. So anyways, but the the premise of the movie is it's, it's this Chinese family who has immigrated and they own a laundromat and live right above it. And they can't finish their taxes. And you're like, how is that an interesting movie? And it, it, it is like Matrix, it is genre defined. So all of a sudden, there's, there's all these martial arts going on and, and multiple worlds and all of this. And I, it's so hard to describe. And there's some, some scenes that are, are inappropriate. So uh, I, I give your, your listeners a caution there. But having said that, it's a stunning movie because at the very end, I, and it's all about this troubled marriage. Because she's so busy and so stressed out that this couple has now, they, they're doing this laundromat and they're just, they're together, but they're not. And mm. a daughter who feels totally neglected and criticized. And the aha moment to just break it down at the very end is she realizes the beauty of the mundane. And she had just felt guilty for and, and shame about how she thought her life was going to turn out and all these amazing things we we're going to do. But it, she finally gets to the point of realizing the beauty of, of this marriage and of her daughter and of just of the life that was given. And I thought, oh, this is amazing because this is a brand new movie that I think is going to win a lot of awards. And it's telling us slow down and appreciate the mundane. Mm. That's actually a Christian message right that they, we should affirm that right it is and 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 so i think th- this this producer and director they're they're connecting to something deeply human which we would say from the christian is is our longing for shalom that's been lost Right, And we should jump into this conversation.
1: Well, even as you mentioned that, this this idea of mundane, I think people look at Matthew 28, 19, you know, go and make disciples of all nations. And they feel this guilt because they're not going and making disciples. They're not going to the nth degree. They're not going to Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan or whatever. But yet at the same time, you've got Timothy, you got Paul telling t- t- some of the people, just make it your ambition to live a, live a quiet life. Quiet
0: life. Yeah, exactly. And
1: it's like, well, wait a minute. What? It, aren't those... Contradictory? Aren't, aren't I supposed to be going after this? It's like, but you're to be a disciple where you are. Even in the household codes of, of Ephesians and Colossians, husbands love your wives, wives respect your husbands, children slaves. So I, I think people have a, a wrong understanding of the, the full holistic nature of the Christian life that we have to recover. And part of that is recovering our humanity. Now the, on the other side, there's a part of me though, that goes, okay, we got that into the, the, the pendulum, you know, the one pole, but then there's the other part that I want to go into Peter and go, okay, we're also partakers of the divine nature. So let's get right. into that, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's yeah, your yeah. next
0: book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're, you're absolutely right on that. I mean, it, it again, you know, old Testament exile period, Jeremiah, the, you, this prophetic word where it's like, well, you're in exile. Shouldn't you spend all your energy trying to get back? And he says, no, plant, marry, and live, right?
1: Well, that's, so I'm doing this thing on Daniel. I'm speaking at a place where we're talking about Daniel. And I, and I don't think people realize really that it's so counterculture to where we're at right now, where Daniel is is basically, he's forced off the land, right? He's brought into exile. He's basically castrated. He has to go to a pagan seminary and take on a pagan name and learn on pagan history. And that seems to be so far from our American autonomous, you know, you can't do that to me kind of thing. And he does it and he succeeds or even Esther and her limitations. I I was trying to share this with a class I was teaching the other day where this woman is, is doled up for a year. You know she she doesn't have freedom. She's selected in this beauty contest, probably a contest I'm not sure if she really wants to win, but I mean, it has great ramifications if she does. But then she spends one night with a king. They weren't having conversation. yeah you know this is this is not a g rated. this is not that type of thing. And yet she learns how to live within this parameters that she finds herself. That I think many of us find ourselves not that extreme, of course, but but we find ourselves in less ideal circumstances, and it's not about the flashbang; it's about that again. The Eugene Peterson, uh, a, a long obedience in one one direction mm-hmm. is it, or the same, same direction, direction, yeah, same direction. I need to get that book. I th- I think this is where your book is such a corrective, and not just a corrective where it's a guilt inducing thing, but it's a freeing thing where it's okay to need a nap. It's okay to not be on Facebook or Instagram or, or, or be controlled by the forces that seem to just push us and push us and push us. It's okay to take a vacation. It's okay to take a Sabbath. It's it's okay to, to, you know, watch a show. It's okay. Because I do think again, we have the, as you said before, don't waste your life idea, which has led, I think, some people unintentionally to, to burnout. And now we've got to come back and again, find that, that rhythm and that that balance. Well, I mean, I know we've gone a long time. I want to thank you for being so generous with your time. But tell us, how can people learn more about what you're doing and follow along uh, with your
0: ministry? That's that's a great and generous question. And partly just because of the book, I'm not on social media. so. <laughs> That's okay. So That's I don't okay. Twitter. I'm not on Facebook or Twitter. Um, what but I your say, life is happier. Yeah. <laughs> your Ignorance life is happier is because bliss. of it. So, oh. But it also makes me thankful for people like you who have me on. So, you know, the books are all out there on Amazon. You can you type my name and people can find, a part of it is because then I become more accessible. So, you know, I have a faculty webpage. It says some of the work I've done. And there's a thing where, you know, when I go out and speak and stuff, there's forums for people. But besides that, yeah, it's just, yeah, I don't know. Re- read, <laughs> just know. get the book, right? Yeah, just get, just the book, get the book, whatever. Get the audio book. You don't even have to read it. So, and, and no, get the book. You don't have to read it. And then I'll. It's I. I still make my whatever forty five cents on the you know. So you don't need to buy it. Get it from a library. Do whatever. Anyways, thanks so much, Travis. This has been super fun. I really appreciate all the time and thought, and it is honoring to talk to someone who's really. Read the book, digested it, wrestling with it, and sees you know who also resonates. These themes resonate with, and that's an encouragement to me. So thank you deeply for that.
1: Oh no, it was a real joy, and we got to have you on
0: again. When's your next book coming out? Uh, I'm in the midst of working on it, but we can talk about embodied hope sometime because that that probably would that's more about the pain and suffering part, and that's a different, very different conversation. But where a lot of people are, and that's interesting because people think, well, you're talking about being human and the good of it, but what happens when? I deal with chronic pain. What happens when I lost a child to death? What happens when the church has treated me awfully? So how do we put those two together? The good of being a human, but we live in a fallen and broken world. And I think Christians, here's my short spiel between the two, and partly why I've written both books. I think Christians are constantly tempted to lie. We're tempted to lie either about just how messed up the world and and we are, And to be like, oh, everything's great. God's in control, which is, you know, or we're tempted to lie about God. And when we do start being honest about how broken the world is in our lives, then we are tempted to act like God is not actually good. God is unconcerned. And so I'm interested in us being truthful about reality, which includes our situation in a broken, fallen world and the truthfulness about God and his goodness. So Anyways, maybe we can do that sometime. That'd be fun. Yes,
1: we will. I'll make sure that I get a copy and then we'll set that up. But really, Kelly, it's been a delight to have you on the show. And thank you for coming on Apollo's Water.
0: You got it. Take care. I
1: want to thank you for joining me for this deep conversation. And would you please help us by subscribing and leaving a review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen? When you do it, it actually helps us to water the faith of more people. We need people like you to spread the word about conversations like this one. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments about the show, check us out on our Facebook page or our Instagram account and feel free to drop us a line. Much thanks to our Apollos Watered team of Kevin, Melissa, Eliana, and Rebecca. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody.